The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and 1077 FM HD2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Tech Talk Radio. It's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Andrew Mitchell. And as always, it's an interesting week in technology. Uh, This week, we had a funeral for Internet Explorer. It is now officially dead. We have a memorial service today for Internet Explorer so we can all share our thoughts about IE. And the AirTag has been used by police to track a thief. It's sort of another use for the AirTag that is a good use rather than a nefarious use. This week, we're going to feature Diane Green. She was a co-founder of VMware and a force to be reckoned with in Silicon Valley. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email we got an email from Bob in Maryland. Dear Doc and Andrew, I just came across this somewhat disturbing story in Wired magazine. It looks like the entire country of Costa Rica has been disabled with a massive cyber attack that's been going on for weeks and weeks now. Wow. This seems sort of amazing. This does not appear to be a state actor, at least from the media reports. What's going on here, Doc? Is this really a new level of threats or attacks? All the best, your faithful listener, Bob in Maryland. Well, Bob, that is true. Costa Rica's government has declared a national emergency in response to ransomware. 27 government bodies were targeted in the first attack. The second attack at the end of May hit Costa Rica's healthcare system. Now, at the heart of this hacking spree is Conti, C-O-N-T-I. Conti is uh, Conti is a ransomware that's been observed since 2020 and is believed to be distributed by a Russian-based group. All versions of Microsoft Windows are known to be affected. The government, the U.S. government's offered a reward of up to $10 million dollars for inf- information on the group. Uh, they made that offer, that reward offer in May of 2022. Last year, Conti extorted more than $180 million from its victims, and it has a history of targeting healthcare organizations. The most senior member of Conti is known by the alias Stern or Demon. He acts as the CEO of this group. Now, another member known as Mango acts as a general manager and frequently communicates with Stern. Mango told Stern in one message that there are 62 people on the main team that are really running the Conti infrastructure system, although that number fluctuates, sometimes reaching as high as 100. Uh, And what has happened here, Bob, and why there's a huge uptick in malware 
malware has become a business, a very successful business because businesses are paying the ransom. And what these groups do, they create a platform, a malware platform that can be used by others to attack their victims and secure ransom when they encrypt the servers. How this ransomware works, they penetrate the server, they encrypt all the data uh, with a very secure key, and if the victim wants to get their data back by using the de-encrypt key, they have to pay the ransom. Now, these ver there's also a, a, a Solad is another group that, uh, that that's operating out of Russia. Conti's operating out of Russia. These are not really necessarily state actors in Russia, but Russia simply doesn't uh, doesn't go after them, and they have sort of the unholy alliance. If you don't attack me, uh, I'll leave you alone. And so Russia, these these uh, these operators uh, are operating out of Russia, pretty much unimpeded. And what they've done now is they, with this new business model where they set up a platform and they let others go out and do the dirty work, the whole ransomware business has really accelerated. It's accelerated quite dramatically. Um, these are run just like businesses. And what's interesting, they, they actually have a reputation, if you will. I mean, uh, if, if they have a reputation that the de-encrypt key works, and that you can get all your data back, they're more likely to have people pay the ransom. So they really maintain their reputation. If they say they're going to give a de-encrypt key, they'll make certain that it works. I mean, uh, I've heard of some cases where it didn't work. Uh, the, the, the victim could go back to the help desk, and they would work with them until they got the de-encrypt key to work because they want to maintain their reputation. They want to have the stamp of a good business approval in how they do business with this ransomware. It has become a business. It is the most profitable form of malware out there, and it's been enabled with you know Bitcoin payments and crypto payments that are uh, that uh, allow an somewhat a somewhat a degree of anonymity, and so it's taken off. And so businesses have to be aware of that and make certain that they have got really, really good and complete backups. We got an email from Mark in Richmond. Dear Tech Talk, I've got a four-month-old Acer laptop and a 30, with a 32-inch gaming monitor connected to it as the primary display. Now, the laptop screen is always open with my email and a few other apps, and basically I'm displaying all the gaming graphics on my, uh, on my gaming monitor. Now, what I want to know is, I, you know, I leave the laptop open all the time. Is that bad for the laptop? Should I close it? Is it, is it bad to leave it open? Well, um, Mark, uh, I mean, you can safely leave your laptops lit open all the time. I mean, the nice thing is the screen will, uh, you know, after a while, it will just go to sleep, the screen. And so you won't be, you know, overusing your screen. And But never shutting the lid could actually help the machine last longer because most of the wear and tear is on the hinges and especially on those connections, those wires that have to turn the corner to, to, to power the display. And so if you don't open and close it, you, you've got less wear and tear on the connections 
on the wiring and on the hinges. So it, it may actually last longer. The only downside is leaving it open all the time. It'll pick up dust uh, on your, you know, on your screen. And so you just have to be able to lightly remove that without removing the, um, the, the, the coating on top. We got an email from Sandra in Oakton. Dear Tech Talk, I've got a USB flash drive with several hundred photos on it that I scanned during a recent visit to my uh, grandmother's house. These are precious family pictures that will be difficult to replace if something were to happen to them. I really don't want to lose these photos. I was wondering how long I can count on the drive retaining them if I lock it up in a little fireproof safe. Sandra in Oakton, Virginia. Well, Sandra, most uh, manufacturers claim their flash drives will last, will retain data for 10 years. Now, if the flash drive was new when you copied the pictures on it, it's probably going to be good for, for 10 years if you don't do anything with it. If the drive was used, however, it, it, it may not last 10 years because it's got use on it. You see, each individual memory cell can only be written to a finite number of times, and so they gradually become less effective and they wear out. Now, on the other hand, if, you know, things can happen to, to a flash drive, if you, you know, if you put it in, uh, if you, you, you could write something to it, you could pull it out before the write is complete, you could corrupt the flash drive. There are things that you could do with it that, that, that would actually damage the flash drive. I think it's very dangerous, dangerous, to have only one backup and have that only backup in uh, in one place. Like if your house would burn down, I mean, you'd lose it. The flash drive would burn up. So at a minimum, at a minimum, you want to make another copy of it on another flash drive, preferably a new flash drive, and give it to a family member or a trusted friend who doesn't live in the same house. So if your house goes up in smoke, uh, at least you'll have the flash drive <laughs> as a consolation prize. Now, you could also, I mean, I would all, I mean, I think the more places you have a backup, the better. Uh, the more people that have copies of it, the better. And then it won't, it won't, uh, it won't, um, you know, you won't lose it in case some catastrophe happens. Now, I, I actually like USB external hard drives. You can, you can actually get an external hard drive, not much cost. You can put it in a USB housing, or you can buy an external hard drive. You could copy them to that. External hard drives, I think, tend, would tend to be more um, more secure, you know, than than a uh, than a flash drive. I I actually have I actually have external hard drives. I also upload to the cloud my critical photos. I upload them. I've got them on OneDrive. I've got them on Google Drive. I've got them on Carbonite. I'm ba I'm basically a big redundancy guy. So if you have an online storage service, that certainly is wise. But you want more than one copy. That's the, that's the lesson here. We got an email from Stu in Kilmarnock. If there's a close lightning strike and your TV and equipment is not on at the time, will it damage the equipment? I heard I should unplug my equipment if there's an electrical storm coming up. Sometimes I turn the power off to the surge to the search protector, but, uh, but there could still be damage to the equipment when I, you know, if, if, if I turn off the search protector, what's, how does this all work? Well, actually, Stu, there's really no difference to turning off your TV if lightning strikes. I mean, you might have a plug there, but if lightning strikes, 
the, the power from that lightning strike is going to arc right through the switch and it's going to fry your device anyway. So whether your device is on or off, it's still going to be, if, if you've got a power surge on the power line, it's going to come right through to the TV. Now, it'll come right through to the TV on through both the power cord as well as the cable connection. So if, if you want to really insulate your TV from a lightning strike near the house, you want to disconnect it from the cable connector as well as from the uh, as well as from the, um, um, the, 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 the the power switch, the power cord. Uh, now, I, I, I like to use surge protectors. Uh, so I have uh, surge protectors that you can buy surge protectors where you can run your cable connection through the surge protector too. Uh, you can, uh, uh, as well as running the power through the surge protector. Now, what happens with a surge protector? They've got a device inside of them called MOVs, which are metal oxide varistors. And whenever there's, and the MOV is sort of uh, shorting across the two, uh, the you know the, the 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 two lines of the power cord, and the, and the idea is if you get a a, a big power surge. That MOV is going to short out. It's going to shunt the connector, and it's going to keep the power surge from getting to your electronic device. And it does that just, you know, you basically get an arc right through the oxide. And every time an MOV is activated with the power surge, a little bit more of that oxide gets blown away till eventually the MOV isn't effective at all. And so it becomes a little less effective the more the, uh, MO, the, more the oxide is, is damaged. Now, a lot of the surge protectors will have uh, kind of a little light on them. And when the MOV becomes totally disabled, uh, the light will turn on. It will say no longer protecting. Uh, so if you're going to get a surge protector, I would certainly get one that has that kind of uh, indicator. Now, I tend to use surge protectors. And, and honestly, I have not been unplugging all my electronics, uh, you know, I suppose I could have a lightning strike that's hit the house directly, but it just seems like so much work. So I haven't been unplugging everything really, but I do believe in surge protectors. So I recommend you get surge protectors. And, and if, a, if you do get a lightning strike and you blow through the surge protector, I would uh, recommend that you replace the surge protector because it's not going to be effective the next time. We got an email from uh, Donald in Annapolis, dear tech talk. I've shared my network, my Netflix password on occasion with friends. Now I'm getting kicked off because someone's using my account. How can I tell who's logged on Donald in Annapolis? Well, Donald, I mean, th this is a problem, you know, sharing net Netflix passwords. And, you know, once, once they have your password, they can log back on. I mean, they could, if somebody has your password, they could also change the password. So you couldn't get on. Fortunately, they haven't done that to you, but you can see who's, uh, Who's logged on? It's easy. It either you, you can log. It's easiest to do this with your computer or your laptop. Log on to your Netflix homepage from your computer, and then when you get logged into the uh, to the uh, uh, to your uh, Netflix account, choose your account. You know, you know, in the corner of the screen, choose the account. What you, with your name? What, which is the account you want? In the upper right hand corner, choose your account. Now, it, once you get into the account, click on the settings section, and under settings, there will be something called recent device streaming activity. You'll see a, a list of devices, locations, and connected IP addresses. You should be able to tell who's logged on from those IP addresses. 
or those locations, uh, and you can you can have a very good idea of what's going on. Uh, now, if you see devices or locations that aren't you yours, uh, you should. Uh, I mean, if you want and you don't like it, you can uh, you can actually um, change your password, and they can't get back in. If you don't want to be that abrupt, you can kick them all off. So what you could do. You could, uh, you could hover over your uh, profile icon, choose the account, then go to the settings section, and there's something called sign out all devices. So you could sign out all those devices, then you want to confirm that you're going to do this, and then once you sign out all the devices, you could quickly log in yourself, and then nobody else can get in because you're already there if you want to do that. But if you really have this problem coming on and it's a, a problem on the long-term basis, I would change your password. And then you can control access much better. We got an email from Tracy in Fairfax. Dear Tech Talk, I've got an iPhone that uses iMessage for most of my communications. Now my boss communicates by iMessage, but sometimes I don't want to respond. But I don't want him to know that I read his message. Because once I open the message, it says, message been read. And then he knows that I read a message and I'm not calling him back. It'll make so much my life so much easier if I wouldn't notify him when I read the message. Love the show, Tracy and Fairfax. Well, everybody knows you can enable or disable read receipts across the board uh, by opening the settings app. So what you want to do is you, you, you're opening the, the settings app in your iPhone and then you uh, and then you go down to the messages menu and you can toggle read receipts on or off. Now, most people leave them on, but there's also a few contacts. Maybe you don't want to send a message to. So you can actually turn off. You can have mo you can have read receipt messages sent to most people, but specific people, you don't want to do it. So you can turn off notifications for just one contact. Here's all you need to do from within the messages app. Open the conversation with the contact in question, tap the little I in the top right corner, and on that screen you'll see a setting for send receipts and send read receipts and just toggle it off. That's it. This will override the global settings where you're sending read receipts to everyone, but for your boss, you're not going to be sending them at all, and that should solve your problem. Uh, uh, well, Tracy, uh, uh, best of luck with keeping your boss in the dark when you don't want to talk to him over the weekends. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. We most certainly will. Uh, did you know that you can make your Apple computer run as if it were Microsoft? So instead of iOS, you can run it and pretend you're having Windows. Well, the technology that allows you to do that is called virtualization. And we'll meet one of the pioneers in that field next. Profiles in IT, coming up on Tech Talk Radio. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. The need has never been greater for healthcare professionals. 
Nursing is one of the most in-demand degrees you can have. If you are a registered nurse, you can get a fast track to a BSN and advance your nursing career to the next level. The Stratford University RN to BSN pathway can be completed fully online or in a classroom setting at the Alexandria or Woodbridge campus. Find out more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University. Changing lives, one student at a time. How do you advance your career while still working full-time? With an education that fits your schedule, Stratford University allows students the flexibility to access the course material 24-7 and finish their assignments at their convenience. Pursuing your master's degree has never been easier. You can do this. Find out about graduate programs in cybersecurity, digital forensics, information systems, accounting, and more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University. Changing lives, one student at a time. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech, Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Today we're going to feature Diane Green... She co-founded VMware with her husband, uh, Mendel Rosenblum, and she served as president and CEO of VMware as they scaled it to a huge company that ultimately uh, had an IPO worth $19 billion. She's a force to be reckoned with in Silicon Valley. Diane Green was born June 9, 1955 in Annapolis, Maryland. She lived on the water in Annapolis. Um, her first paying job, actually, was catching crabs for $5 a dozen from the piers lining the Annapolis shore. The crabs would sort of hold on to the piers, and she learned how to reach up behind them and grab them and put them in the bucket without getting pinched. She uh, sailed boats. She sailed a dinghy all around Annapolis. She was on the water all the time. She received a B.S. in mechanical engineering in 1976 from the University of Vermont. In 1978, Diane Green received a Master's of Science in Naval Architecture from MIT. Her dream was to design systems for, uh, for use on the water. She loved naval architecture. She went to work for a San Francisco consulting firm that designed large jacket structures. These are these massive four-leg structures, better known as offshore oil platforms. So she wanted to get involved with designing this stuff. She was an avid sailor since childhood. She was eager to go to work on the sea to, you know, continue her work. And then she discovered the ugly truth. Women are not allowed on the oil rig. So Green quit and moved to Florida to take up windsurfing. She started uh, designing windsurfing gear for a company out in Hawaii. At age 19, Green ran the first windsurfing world competition. Uh, in addition, in 1976, she won the National Women's Dinghy Championships. She was um, like the, you know, dinghy is a, is a small, um, you know, small boat with a single sail. 
And she uh, raced the dinghy and won in the national championship. Now, after her windsurfing stint, she worked in the engineering department of Windsurfing International and then at Coleman, which was eyeing the windsurfing business. Then she decided maybe I should get back into technology a bit after her break with windsurfing. So she picked up a second master's degree in computer science at the University of California in Berkeley. That's where she met her future husband, Mendel Rosenblum. Uh, and, uh, but she found one last time to have a major sea-worthy adventure before she started uh, buckling down with computer science. She, um, she actually served as a computer expert on a treasure hunt for a sunken Spanish galleon off of Saipan. And she was, uh, you know, she really did enjoy that adventure. Then she went back and started working in technology. She worked for Tandem. Then she worked for Silicon Graphics, uh, two tech firms out in Silicon Valley. She and uh, Mendel Rosenblum got married. She had two children. Um, and then in, in the while doing all of that, uh, in 1995, uh, Diane Green founded her first technology company. It was a streaming startup company. They, they actually made streaming media called VX Extreme. They, 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 um, they specialized in low bandwidth streaming video technology. And of course, back in 1995, most of the internet connections were very slow, low bandwidth, and they and people wanted to deliver video over those low bandwidth feeds. So she was providing the technology that allowed to do that by using extreme video compression. She sold VX Extreme to Microsoft in 1997, two months at two years after she founded it, for 75 million dollars. And that became the basis of Microsoft's movie player. The next year, the VMware venture began in 1998 when Green teamed up with her husband, Mendel Rosenblum, who's a professor of computer science at Stanford, and two of his graduate students. Uh, and they started a company uh, called VMware. Now, Green quit her previous startup and signed on in 1998 as an unpaid employee. The following year, Rosenblum took off two years' leave from Stanford to work full-time on VMware. Now, VMware, it's virtual machineware. The idea is that you could actually, you could take a physical computer and you could, on top of it, you could have what they call a virtualization layer, and then you could install a full operating system on top of the virtualization layer. And that operating system, which was on top of the virtualization layer, would think it was installed right on hardware because the virtual virtualization layer emulated the hardware hooks. And, and this virtualization layer was called VMware. So you could take like a laptop and you could put Windows on it, you could put Linux on it, you could put you could even put a Mac operating system on it, and you could have all three of them operating simultaneously in a virtual state. She realized that this was the future of servers 
on the internet. Doc, now, do you have any experience yourself? Like, where does virtualization pop up in your world? Like, what, well, what products? Like what, are, we, yeah. what we have, all of the Stratford systems are out at a data center. We've got two racks at the data center with five physical computers there. We have on top of those five physical computers, 150 virtual machines. Now, what happens is that if students are coming in and they need to have a lot of resources, we can dynamically reallocate RAM, hard disk space, CPU power to any one of these virtual machines. So we can respond to any uh, changes in demand dynamically. And so this running all of these 150 machines on top of five physical machines is extremely efficient. In the old days, I, I would have had 150 computers and they would have all, and you'd have to get enough capacity on, on each one. You can't move resources from one physical computer to another. So you would end up not operating very efficiently. Maybe you would use your, your computer power, maybe only 50% efficiency because it's spread around all these, all of these um, physical machines. But by using virtual machines on top of the physical machines, you, you can probably you, you can run at 90 percent efficiency. And so it, it saves money. It's easier to manage. We can we can dynamically reallocate resources. It it is definitely transformed data centers. Now, she understood that vision and her husband and the graduate students were like research guys. So they had gotten a bunch of university professors to use it, but they were all geeky and uh, they liked playing around with it. And wrote, and um, Diane Green said, look, you've got to make this a product. You've got to productize it. So just the average guy knows how to use it. And so you got to turn this research project into a real product. And that was her job. So her plan was to set up the company, negotiate some deals and then leave. But she ended on, she ended up staying there they worked out of their house initially. Uh, then they graduated to a small office above above the Cheese House. That was like a, um, a store in the shopping center uh, on the street next from Stanford. Now, in 1998, VMware operated in the stealth mode. That meant they were working on something. They didn't want people outside the organization to know what it was doing. They had 20 employees. The company officially launched February of 1999. The beta version of VMware was downloaded 75,000 times on the first day. VMware delivered its first product, VMware Workstation, May of 1999, and entered the server, server market in 2001 with VMware GSX Server. Now, they introduced the technology on the desktop as a way to run multiple operating systems side by side without even doing a reboot. You could go from one operating system to another without rebooting. They then introduced virtualization on the server in order, in order to simplify systems management, increase server utilization and save power. Today, virtualization is ubiquitous in the way servers are run. I mean, we have one guy who, I mean, actually our, the guy that manages, he, he never goes out. He doesn't have to go out to the data center. He manages everything remotely using the uh, using the uh, the management tools that are provided uh, by VMware it has just been a godsend for us but what she did what I, I I can't overstate what Diane Green did she understood the market 
She wasn't a researcher looking at optimizing the code. She understood where the market was. She also understood that the bulk of the, of the servers on the internet were Linux machines. So what she did, she started marketing VMware to Linux engineers, people that were installing Linux on the internet. So she went, she went outside of the university and started getting her product in front of the Linux engineers. And once the Linux engineers understood how powerful it was in terms of running virtualized data centers and how much it reduced their workload and increased their efficiency, the thing took off. So she had the knack to know where the market was and how to market it. And so she scaled VMware dramatically. The, uh, the company actually started growing and EMC Corporation bought it in 2004. Now, if you remember back in the day, we had the dot-com crash in 2001, there was a dot-com crash. And uh, so she, uh, she had tried to take VMware public in 2001. Well, not a good year for the dot-com crash. Then she tried to go have an IPO in 2003. They also pulled that back because there wasn't sufficient demand for it at the time. People were still shell-shocked from the dot-com crash of 2001. So finally, I think in order just to, uh, just to scale, they decided to sell the company. And EMC, EMC Corporation purchased it for $625 million uh, in, uh, you know, in, in 2006, I think. And $625 million. So, I mean, it wasn't bad. They, they you know, that was a, that they, they, they started it in, uh, in 98. And then in, in 2006, they, they sold it for $425 million. And not, that's, that's a pretty good scale up. But they didn't get all the top upside. Because what happened was, now, what it was really key, it, it, VMware had a lot of customers that were competitors of the EMC Corporation. So Green insisted that when EMC buys VMware that they keep a distant relationship. So VMware could keep servicing customers who might be competitors of EMC, and EMC would, would be none, none the wiser. So they created sort of a, um, a separation between EMC and VMware so VMware could still keep their customer base. Now, in August of 2007, the tech scene was beginning to recover. And EMC took VMware public. Uh, and they raised a billion dollars with that initial public offering. Now, guess what the, the, uh, the uh, cap, market cap was when they went public? $20 billion. Now, they bought it in 2004 for $625 million. And in 2007, EMC had a market cap of 19, above $20 billion. So unfortunately, the founders of VMware sort of lost out on all that upside. Now, at the time, Green only had a 2.1% share of the IPO. So she made about $500 million, $500, $600 million out of the deal. She certainly didn't make anywhere close to $19 billion. EMC, that was probably the best purchase that EMC ever made. Now, the next year after the IPO in 2008, 
um, she was fired by the CEO of, uh, of, of, EM, of the EMC cloud division. And she, um, you know, they wanted to put their own people in running, uh, running, uh, running VMware. The, the next day, and then three of the top engineers, including her husband, resigned from, from uh, VMware. And the next day, the, the, the stock tanked 24%. Uh, now, uh, a few years later, she founded her third startup, Bebop. It was a development platform that makes it easy to build and maintain enterprise applications. Because you see this VMware, you know, you got all these virtual servers. How, how can you manage all of these? You need, you need the dashboard that tracks everything. So she built an interface so you could remotely manage your, your enterprise and all your enterprise applications. It was, a, it was sort of a needed complementary tool to what VMware was. And uh, it was very effective for managing enterprises and managing particularly enterprises that are on the cloud. She ended up selling that to Google in 2015 uh, for $380 million. And the next day, she was named CEO of Google Cloud. In 2015, Google wanted to enter the cloud business. I mean, Amazon had had Amazon Web Services, AWS, they were making a lot of money in the cloud. Microsoft had Azure, they were making a lot of money on the cloud. Uh, Google wanted to get in on the act. So they brought her in as CEO of Google Cloud. And she ended up between uh, 2015 and 2019 building the Google Cloud business up to an $8 billion annual run rate. She really built that business. That's her forte. She can take a core technology that's been developed by the computer scientists. She knows how to package it, sell it, and scale it. She left. Uh, she resigned as Google Cloud CEO in late in late 2018 when they had reached the uh, the eight billion dollar revenue mark uh, because I think she felt her work was done. She and her family still sail. Uh, that she's got a 31-foot trimaran. It's a three-hulled ocean-going sailboat. They still sail that all around San Francisco Bay. They enjoy that. She skis the backcountry. This is a woman who has made her way very effectively with three startups. One of them scaled to a huge size. She's able to identify where technology fits and market it, and she's done that three times over. She's a force to be reckoned with in Silicon Valley, and it's quite exceptional given the fact that Silicon Valley has such a bias against women. It's a man's culture, but she knew how to tackle it and succeed in it. There you go, everything you need to know about Diane Green, best known as co-founder and CEO of VMware. So this daughter of Annapolis, Maryland has never strayed far from the sea in her sporting and leisure pursuits and it's never far from her thinking in the business world either. And Doc will explore that theme in a minute. So pour yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, as we join Doc in his observations from the faculty lounge next on Tech Talk Radio. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. 
The need has never been greater for healthcare professionals. Nursing is one of the most in-demand degrees you can have. If you are a registered nurse, you can get a fast track to a BSN and advance your nursing career to the next level. The Stratford University RN to BSN pathway can be completed fully online or in a classroom setting at the Alexandria or Woodbridge campus. Find out more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University. Changing lives, one student at a time. How do you advance your career while still working full-time? With an education that fits your schedule, Stratford University allows students the flexibility to access the course material 24-7 and finish their assignments at their convenience. Pursuing your master's degree has never been easier. You can do this. Find out about graduate programs in cybersecurity, digital forensics, information systems, accounting, and more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University. Changing lives, one student at a time. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for observations from the faculty lounge. Now let's look at Diane Green's management style. I think uh, there are a few exceptional women in Silicon Valley that actually reach the summit and actually win in the startup world. And Diane Green is one of them. They're, they're far and few between. So it's very interesting to see how she does it and what particular attributes allowed her to achieve that level of success in a man's world. Now, she views her leadership style much as the same as when she's skipper of a racing vessel. Everything goes back to the sea for Diane. When she is skippering a racing vessel with a crew, she's got to understand the weather. She's got to understand the wind patterns. She's got to understand the currents. And she's got to understand all of the competitors to try to outmaneuver them. So she's looking at the environment external to the ship. Now, she's a very strong believer in sharing information broadly and engaging people and partners. She's transparent about things, and she doesn't like deviousness. She has to look at all of these outside influences, develop a strategy, communicate that clearly to the crew so they know exactly where they have to go and why they and how they have to do it. And that's actually how she runs all of her business activities. Now, she believes that one of the most important traits of a leader is humility. And she has a belief that she's no better than the folks that are that she's working with. She doesn't view herself as high and mighty. She views, views herself as part of the team. And she looks at all of these other factors in the ecosystem, the weather, the wind, the currents, the competitors, and formulates a strategy and works with her team to optimize their performance. Now, leadership like Greens is like quieter and more thoughtful. She doesn't like bark out orders all the time. I would say she's probably the antithesis of Elon Musk, if just 
making an opposite. Although Elon Musk is very successful, but she doesn't manage at all like Elon Musk. Now, her ability to solve huge problems stems from her frame of mind. She doesn't pursue money. She doesn't pursue fame. She doesn't pursue a product. She doesn't pursue a leadership position. She pursues a big abstract idea, which in the, in the first, her first startup, she wanted to solve the problem of delivering video in the world of low bandwidth infrastructure. In her second startup, she wanted to transform the data center, make it easier to manage, more efficient by using virtualization. In her third startup, she wanted to develop tools that would allow you to manage a virtualized environment more efficiently. In each case, she had a large abstract idea that she focused on. She's almost, almost has an academic a, a detachment from the business world when she's focused on the big idea. But she knows the big idea will be successful, and when it is successful, there will be money to be made. And that kind of focus is what gave her tremendous respect within Silicon Valley. In the beginning, she didn't have that respect because she was quiet, a quiet leader, a humble leader. But as she racked up more and more and more success, as she created more teams that were well-oiled machines, and as her companies scaled, people began to take note of her, and she did succeed dramatically, successfully, in the man's world in Silicon Valley. And I think scaling, doesn't it get more respect than anything else? I mean, a great idea is only just an idea until you begin to really scale it. That's where you make your money. That's where you change the world. That's where you get noticed. That's where you become a household name. So it's really in about taking an idea and making it big. And that's what she was good at and that's has what she, been good yeah, at. Yeah, I, I heard her talk about she was uh, she was with uh, in a seminar talking about scaling. And she said, usually the ideas for scaling sort of come at you sideways. You're, you're, you're working on a big vision. And all of a sudden, you, you get this dramatic idea of how you can scale it. And so she's always looking for the scaling opportunities, and she says they come at you sideways. And But this is because she has such a broad view, she can look at the entire environment. She sees stuff coming in sideways. There's a, um, um, I mean, there's this kind of this analogy where some guy's given a job and he has to uh, crank this machine to keep it running. And he keeps cranking, cranking, cranking. And the, and the more he cranks it, the, the more bonuses he gets. So he just spends all of his time focused on cranking it. Now, in the next room, there's an electric motor. But because he's so busy cranking this thing to get his bonuses, he doesn't look around. On the other hand, um, uh, she, would, uh, she would actually look around at the environment. Diane Green would look around. She wouldn't get so locked in on the task. And she'd look around. And she'd say, oh, look at this electric motor in the next room. Why don't we just hook the electric motor up to the machine and do it? Her ability to have a broad view while she's focused on a task gave her that, gave her that edge in Silicon Valley. And that's really important if you're trying to build companies and pivot. 
So All right. should we just well, keep on no, going? No, I think we, we got time for a little bit a bit of a break because people have to put their somber suits on. We're uh, going to a funeral next on Tech Talk Radio. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. The need has never been greater for healthcare professionals. Nursing is one of the most in-demand degrees you can have. If you are a registered nurse, you can get a fast track to a BSN and advance your nursing career to the next level. The Stratford University RN to BSN pathway can be completed fully online or in a classroom setting at the Alexandria or Woodbridge campus. Find out more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University. Changing lives, one student at a time. How do you advance your career while still working full-time? With an education that fits your schedule, Stratford University allows students the flexibility to access the course material 24-7 and finish their assignments at their convenience. Pursuing your master's degree has never been easier. You can do this. Find out about graduate programs in cybersecurity, digital forensics, information systems, accounting, and more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University. Changing lives, one student at a time. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for a moment of reflection. A very, a very somber announcement, and, and, and it comes with military honors for some reason. I don't yes. know. But Internet Explorer is officially dead. Which, which is bad news for a lot of old-timers, right? People get really stuck on doing one thing the way they've always done it, and now you really cannot rely on Internet Explorer anymore. So tell us about that, Doc. I know. It's, uh, it, it's a sad day for all of the... Uh, <laughs> for the, the most stubborn, for the most stubborn among us, basically. <laughs> I started out with, with uh, Netscape, Netscape Explorer, oh, and then wow. Internet Explorer came along. I was an Internet Explorer guy, but... Gradually, it became long and long in the tooth. They, do you realize they've had no updates for Internet Explorer for ten years? Well, that, there's your hint right there. You know, at some it's point, kind of, it's kind of been on life support. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> system. Now, so as you might expect, Internet Explorer got its performance went downhill without any upgrades. And uh, if you're still using Internet Explorer, it's probably time to switch because now that they've totally announced its retirement, uh, there will be no security patches and your machine is going to be at risk. Now, Microsoft recommends that you switch to Microsoft Edge. That's the company's successor to Internet Explorer. Now, what's interesting, I mean, you know, I, I use Google Chrome. I love Google Chrome. It's like fast and, and you know, it's very responsive. It had a lot of extensions that were available. And, but what Google did that was very interesting, they built it on top of an open source software project called Chromium, and they released all of the core um, 
technology in the Chrome browser to the world as open source software. That included all of the rendering engines that, that, are, that, that, that are built into the browser. So Microsoft, when they wanted to build a browser that could match the capacity of Chrome, guess what? They built it on the Chromium open source project. So the guts of Microsoft Edge are identical to the guts of Chrome. Why did now, Chrome do that, though? Why would Google do that? Why would they open up, you know, why would they create this platform that anybody can use? And it's, it's well, a proprietary, you know, thing after all. I mean. Well, here's here's the magic of, of open source software. Uh-huh. Um, when you make it open source, instead of only having software engineers at your company work on it to make it better, you have software engineers around the globe working on it to make it better. So you might go from 200 people working on it to 200,000 people working on it. And so it accelerates the improvement of the, pro of the, of the product. Wow. And, and so there is a huge acceleration when you get more people involved. You know, more eyes are better than no. Also, there's a feeling that open source is more secure because everybody's looking at looking at it, looking at glitches in the code. So Google wanted to accelerate the process. It, it, even see, look, look at what Elon Musk did with te Tesla. He released the core patents uh, on the Tesla uh, so that there would be more electric uh, cars in the world. Because he felt if there were more electric cars in the world, it would accelerate the technology. There would be more uh, charging stations, and 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 Tesla would 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 go up with the rising tide when everybody succeeds. So even Elon Musk kind of used the same concept of open source um, to you know to accelerate transition to to EVs. So I. I, I and Google has actually done this open sourcing quite often. Now they'll keep certain pieces of it proprietary that that link to their system. So it's not all open source. They keep my, a few pieces they keep to themselves and they build on top of the open source platform. Like for instance, Google has a software that manages data centers using containers. It's called Kubernetes, which is which is it's a virtualization of the whole data center. It's we're taking virtualization up one level and they made kubernetes an open source project that that could uh, that that could be used across the board so google has done this quite a bit even microsoft has a doubt which was the proprietary shop in the world even they embraced open source i mean microsoft has embraced linux and they've added open source drivers to the linux community even uh, microsoft has done it so there's a feeling that if you can have better code out there, that you'll 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 be able to accelerate the processes better. Now that doesn't mean you're giving away your core. To, it's how you package it and how you sell it. Because look at what uh, look at what our uh, our uh, Green did, uh, Diane Green. She's able to take core technology, package it, productize it, and sell it. So how you productize it, how you sell it, how you monetize it is something that's unique to you, but you've got a good core to build on. So Microsoft, uh, you know, used the, the, the Chrome. And so, uh, so I think browsers in general, it was good for browse, the browser world. They are now open source. Uh, and so uh, I didn't use the, um, 
the Microsoft Edge because they, they didn't have as many features as Chrome. Chrome was more developed. So I, I got started with Chrome. I like Chrome. I'll try out Edge. I think Edge has really gotten very, they've added a lot of extent extensions to it now. They have added features that, that were now embedded in the, in the Chrome browser. And I think Microsoft Edge is really a good a good device. It's uh, Edge is, compared to Internet Explorer, Edge is faster, more secure. And, and it gives you the modern browsing experiences. Now, here's the thing. I, I went into my Microsoft Edge, and you can go to settings, and you can turn on an Internet Explorer emulator, and you can make it look like Internet Explorer, but it's sitting on top of Edge. Now, see, that's so, so comforting for some of the older <laughs> people who just cannot you know, deal with anything new. There, you can pretend. You can pretend you still have Internet Explorer. Exactly. It's, it's, it's like you can, you know, a, a loved one dies and you can have a video of them there and they to remind you of them. Well, <laughs> you can you can you, you can have Internet Explorer there to, you know, make it comfortable for you if, if, if you're really missing it too much. So that's uh, kind of an interesting thing here. Let's uh, let's just go to the air tag. I think we've got a couple a minute oh, okay. here too. Yeah, we do. I think we'll go to the air tag. I don't, right. I don't have enough time to get to no. the uh, Linux uh, no. malware. That's kind of a long description. You you've heard about air tags. These are these devices that that are used for tracking things. And the Apple air tag, what it does is uh, you can you can you can put an air tag on a device and you can link it to find my phone, find my device, and then as if if another iPhone gets close to that AirTag, suppose you left your purse that had an AirTag in it at a, a restaurant, and there's somebody with an iPhone sitting close to your phone, uh, the AirTag will link to it, and it will send a message back to the internet, and it will come back to your phone, and you'll be notified that the AirTag has been located by another iPhone device at that area. So it's, 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 a, it's very good for tracking things. People have put air tags into moving shipping containers or they've shipped uh, shipped um, packages with the U.S. post office with air tags. And then whenever it comes close to somebody at the post office with an iPhone, they can track they can track their package with the with the air tag. Now, there was a problem with this in that uh, a woman might go to a bar and somebody sticks an air tag in her purse and they would use it for stalking. And so there was huge criticism of that, and that's all we'd heard. But last week, it turned out a thief stole somebody's backpack with an air tag in it. The police tracked him down and arrested him because he was carrying the air tag around with him. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. Check out all of our programs at stratford.edu, you know, nursing, health sciences, software engineering, networking, hospitality, culinary arts, business accounting. And when you uh, call Stratford, tell them that you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.